Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning, it's Friday morning. I'm going to try to get this in. Really, some people are writing me from Israel complaining I should do this on Thursday, but I don't have the time. I don't have the time, especially this week, like I said before. I have to make a hadron for the for yards that I have on Sunday, and um, lectures to give, whatever, I don't have time. Anyway, instead of worrying about that, let's get down to business. We're looking today at Parshas Shemona uh, Boerup, and um, I remember last year I told you, you should listen to that if you're interested, about that very remarkable medrash at the beginning of Eir, but I'm not going to go into that right now. Let's talk about the Ten Plagues. Um... Most people, myself included, are not Egyptologists. And so, we don't really know what life was like in ancient Egypt. And uh, there's whole science about this. In fact, I teach in a university where basically most of the people in my department are Egyptologists. I'm not. You know, so i got to go to conferences once in a while. But um, you realize from the point of view of Egyptology, the exodus never happened. Because there's no record whatsoever historically that there was ever such a thing as the Jewish people or they were ever in Egypt. And that kind of stuff. You don't have them from ancient records. Now, put that aside. But reading the story of the Ten Plates, which starts in Vayera and goes in the bow, as we all know perfectly well. So, it seems to me, and all you ever get is my take, they have something very interesting going on, because if you look at the Book of Shmos, I've said this many times, and we will do so in the future. The Book of Shmos, among other things, is a kind of a, a theological journey or training course. Uh, it's a well-known concept that you can't teach people heavy ideas at one shot. You have to do a little by little. Uh, think of Miss Elsie Sharm with Step by Step, for example. It's a classic uh, scholarship model in which you can't have heavy ideas after done little by little. One of the ideas that has to be taught little by little is the idea of God. I mean, what God means. And that's the story of Shemos. Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't know everything in the beginning. That's the story of the book. And Claudius all definitely doesn't know. And so at the very beginning, all we know is that Moses is at the burning bush and God says, speaks to him in family terms. Don't say I'm a universal being. I'm beyond uh, comprehension, uh, you know, the philosophical stuff. He doesn't give him a Maimonides introduction. I am the unknowable, right? Instead, he says, no, uh, you know, I'm your, I'm your Zaydi's God, you know, like like a Hasidic uh, uh, <laughs> descendant, you know. In fact, Medrash even says they spoke to him in the voice at the burning bush. God spoke to him in the voice of Amram. Can't get more family-oriented than that. So, as far as Moshe knows, there's some great powerful God out there. Do I know if he understood that this is the only God and this and that and the other? You know, uh, it doesn't say... Let me just think out loud. I don't think in Bracious you have, sitting here uh, by myself as I do, I don't know anywhere in Bracious you have theological statements. I'm the only God out there, there are no other besides me, Eno, Bilvado, and that kind of stuff. Right? Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, I don't think you, you, you encounter that. Instead, you have kind of very family, tribalistic oriented things. 
I uh, will make you a great nation. I'll make you have a lot of children. I'll give you this land of the Kanani. It's just interesting. You know, it's a very, very uh, localized kind of a phenomenon. Uh, doesn't say oh, I like you, Abraham, because you, uh, you know, taught everybody that there's no other God and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I can't think of one. Maybe I'm mistaken. I, I don't think so. That's just very interesting. So if you grew up at that time, it's possible, of course, that you knew, you know, the the uh, profound concept of monotheism and, you know, the, the rejection of polytheism. I bet you a lot of people, especially the Jews in Egypt, probably thought there are a lot of gods out there, mine stronger than yours. Uh, and when Moshe, as I said before, says, what's your name? Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, it's unclear, you know. And if you read closely, I don't have it in front of me, the Chumash, but if you read closely, God says, when the Jewish people come and tell you, just say, El Hayavosechem. And when Moshe comes, you know, Lech Yasafta has been Israel, and say, El Hayavosechem Shalchani Alechem. Zeshmi Liolam, Zezirchi Dorador. Don't ask for Maimonides and stuff. Just tell El Hayavosechem. And indeed, when he p- appears to Paro, he says, El Hayavrim Shalchani Alechem, or something like that, right? To the God of the Hebrews. And, and Paro says, I don't know the God of the Hebrews, you know, but no, was Avalist, as Rashi says. But the God of the Hebrews, per se, because it's not supposed to be God of the Hebrews, it's God, period. That's beyond the comprehension. The only reason I'm mentioning this is, sure, as the story unfolds, they learn that this God is pretty powerful. And so, uh, you have the templates, and what's the purpose of templates? Is it just like poking uh, pinpricks at Egypt? You know, it's like a certain sadism. Let's put it this way. Why don't bonus them just hit him with the Makas Bechoros up front, and then it would fold like a house of cards? Because that's what did it. But he doesn't do that. It's a don't, right? They Akinim, Marv, and all that kind of business. So what's shot with that business? That, you know, little by little unfolds. The best I can make out of it sitting here this morning is that if you think about it, um, each of the plagues, at least many of them, seem to me to be directed in a slow, educative process. Not for the Goyim so much. Not for the Egyptians, but for the Hebrews. Um, because each one sort of like takes down a core component, let's say, of the Egyptian civilization and religions, religious systems. For example, the first two, Dhammas write it, Blood and Frog. Well, we translate as frogs. It's most likely speaking from a historical perspective, if such a thing is possible, to talk like Dibbin Ezra, it's a crocodile, right? Alligators. Uh, The reason I say this is, all you have to do is go on the internet and just do a little bit of Egyptology search, and you'll see the crocodiles were a big god, and they're uh, sort of subjects and representatives of denial. Okay, you hear what I'm saying? You know, the Egyptians had an unbelievably complicated theological system, you know, beyond me even. Yeah, I'm just saying, you know, you have to really study this at huge lengths. But uh, let's put it this way. All the temples had crocodiles, and they used to put diamonds on them and things like this, and they were, you know, uh, the servants of the Nile god. So, if you're a guy, and you're an Egyptian, and you see all of a sudden the river Nile turn into blood, what does that tell you? Somebody killed the Nile. Isn't that right? From their perspective. Yeah? Not your perspective. You're from Jew, brainwashed to 3,000 years of from Kite. And so you, there's one God, the Egyptian God is nothing. And it's all a matter of just, you know, Nisim flows. I get it. But once upon a time, 3,000, 3,500 years ago, whatever it was, this happened. You're an Egyptian. You don't, you're not thinking like somebody living in America today in 2020. So, what do you say? You say, the Nile is the main God. I think everybody knows that. I, I believe my listeners know that. 
The Nile is the main god. It brought the water, of course, into the desert area of Egypt, made it fertile. Uh, even to this day, there are songs in Egyptian culture about, you know, we're the children of the Nile and all that kind of stuff. So it's of gigantic importance. And at the very first thing, the Nile is killed or it turns into blood. Do you remember I could remind you the story of Titus? When he stabbed the Prochus, he thought he killed God. That's a natural reaction. And so I think most from Jews today concentrate on the fact that, uh, you know, the famous story, the Jew had water, the Egyptian didn't have water, he had to pay the Jew for the water. I mean, you know, all that, that's a, so immediately think in Jewish terms. <laughs> but, uh, court of the market. But in that time, they started to kill their God. And wait a minute, I'm not finished. The next thing, the crocodiles go crazy, the Tridea. They go all over, no, the crocodiles don't act like they're supposed to act. You understand? They start biting and this and that, and the other, they go all over the place. And uh, what does that mean? The God is discomfited. He's been killed, and since he's been killed, so he no longer controls the, the crocodiles, and, they, and, and they're going wild. That's, in my opinion, that's how an Egyptian would have processed it, and therefore a Hebrew would have processed it. You understand? In the dumb, the, the, the Nile was killed, and therefore the crocodiles are usually kept in a certain reserve. You know, there's a few of them around, now go wild. They've been unleashed, and there's chaos. So if you were an Egyptian, average Egyptian, you moms had a nervous breakdown because you know, the, the, all of the world is going crazy. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, go, it, it's going out, out, of, uh, out of whack. Uh, the lice is easy because, at least to me, because this we know from Egyptology. In the ancient world, everybody had a beard. If you didn't have a beard, it was a macho, you're a eunuch. You understand? You, know, you don't have the testosterone. You need to grow the hair. So anybody who would be clean-shaven would be considered like, what's wrong with you from the sexual perspective? You know, what's, what, what are you, a, a, a sarisa, a eunuch? That's why it was a big diss to do that. But there's one exception that's very known. And as the Egyptian priesthood, they used to shave from head to toe. As a matter of fact, in the Chumash, the Levium in Bamidbar somewhere, when they're inaugurated into the priesthood, the, the Levite priesthood, they're also shaved like Egyptian style, head to toe. The Haviru Sara Kolbasaram Vichibsu Big Dehemvi Taharu. Isn't that what it says over there? And then how the whole Korach uh, thing popped up, you know, Korach's wife said, you look like a pickle or something like that, you know, and he said, Moshe didn't, and he said, Moshe making fun of you. That's the classic story in the Chazal, how Korach's wife uh, heads them on to, to, to take on the Moshe and start the Machlokas. So the Egyptian priesthood was shaved from top to bottom. Why? The answer is they were obsessed with lice. That's what they, the, the scholars tell us. In their culture... That kind of lice would drive you crazy. So the only way to get rid of lice is to have no hair. <laughs> you understand? Uh, or to seriously reduce it. As every uh, parent that has kids in school, especially girls in Basialco, knows that the lice is the problem. You, gotta, you know, you, you got to get... If there's no hair, you have no, tr no trouble. Now, what happened in the third plague after the Nile was killed and the crocodiles are unleashed, you know, nobody's controlling them anymore? Uh, what happened next? Uh, lice breaks out everywhere. And uh, even the, the Egyptian priests, even though they're, uh, you know, have no hair to cover with lice, because everybody was. The dust, it says, turned into lice. That, again, is like 1984. That's your worst nightmare from a point of view of the priesthood. And in my opinion, I think the Pusik says, 
Right? The Khartumim tried to mozi a sakinim. It's usually translated that they tried to produce lice and they weren't able to. But um, they weren't able to. But uh, let's put it this way I think it means they tried to remove the hotzi sakinim. They're freaking out. Uh, that the Khatum tried to be Motsi the kingdom from their bodies. And therefore, what did they say to Pharaoh? Let him go. Etz Belohimi. The, the, the priesthood, the Khatumim, they say to Pharaoh, this, this unbearable situation. And each time, as you know, Moshe stops the plague after a week or something like that. So if the Nile would have stayed dead, the whole Egypt just would have collapsed. Not simply because of the fact that they didn't have uh, water. But also due to the fact that you know their their whole theological system was destroyed, and God wasn't interested in doing that. You hear what I said? Doesn't say that God ended up nuking Egypt and wiping out and killing everybody. He just wanted to make the, let the Jews go. It's a it's an interesting story. He doesn't. If he would have let the the crocodiles go wild uh, w- without any uh, stop, Egypt would have crumbled. Again, not only from the fact that how do you handle the plague of crocodiles? I think I guess you could kill them. I suppose. You know, get the army out. But from a theological perspective, Egypt just would have collapsed. And also with the lice, if they would have gone on and on and on and on with the priesthood, they just couldn't handle it and it would have collapsed. In each case, Jeroboam was not interested in destroying the gods. All it says is, which is an interesting expression. It doesn't say I'm going to wipe out the Egyptian culture. I just want to give them a shake-up so they'll let the Jews go. Afterwards, they will come up with their own theological explanations why the religion is still good. Because Egypt, after all, didn't change into monotheism as a result of the Ten Plagues. People don't do that. They interpret, you know, as long as the problem goes away, they'll interpret the reality to fit their own uh, story. Isn't it very interesting, isn't it? Don's Vardia Kinem, of Devish I don't know about all of them, but, you know, when you get the boils, it's kind of interesting, because to this day we don't know exactly what the boils are. And I remember, uh, you know, Preuss in the biblical Talmudical medicine, the from guy he, uh, from Germany a hundred years ago, he said it was either syphilis or leprosy. Well, uh, the ancient Manetho, you know, the Egyptian historian who lived, I guess, a thousand years or so after the exodus from Egypt and wrote the Egyptica, which is the official book of the Egyptian past, although it's not really telling the truth, but he, and he has a different version of the Exodus story, and now it's not the time to go into that. I have a speech about that online if you're interested. Uh, but he says, he speaks about the, uh, the, the loathsome skin disease and the leprosy that plagued Pharaoh and the Egyptians, which he attributed, of course, to the uncleanliness of the Hebrews. But that's the Egyptian way of refracting the biblical story of the boils, you understand, of the shrin. And... Uh, then what else do you have over there? You see what I'm saying? I don't have no key on this. It's just a, what shall I say, intelligent observation. You go through the story. I'm giving you an idea what to talk about on Shabbos, if you choose to. Uh, each of the plagues, is, 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 it seems to me, is aimed towards a different stratum of the uh, Egyptian uh, power and religious structure. So, for example, um, off the top of my head, the hail and the locusts. Who does that go after? That's the landowners, right? These are the powerful group, the aristocracy. Because by this time, 
even though Paro had, according to the story, at the time of Yosef, bought up all the land, but what happens inevitably in every society is that the pharaoh then gives out land to what we would call high officials. They become the nobles, the aristocracy. So they're under pharaoh, and you know he may own the land ultimately, but they get it under him. Classical uh, situation all over the world. Uh, feudal system is one manifestation of it, but there's always some form of that. So who gets hit by the uh, by the locust, let's say, obviously, and the uh, hailstone, the hailstones? It's your uh, agriculturists, right? The owners of the land. These are probably the main employers of the Hebrew slaves. Now, there are Midrashim to this. I don't have a Medrash in front of me, but there is a Medrash in Vayera. If you take the look, trouble, look it up. And uh, it says, how come this happened because the uh, Mitzri made the Jews do this and this? And how come that happened because the Mitzri made the Jews do that and that? So, um, you know, they're basically, in a Midrashic way, saying what I'm telling you. Which is, each one was aimed at uh, either the priesthood or the fundamental theological system or, um, as I said before, the great landowners who obviously have a lot of say with Pharaoh. And if you remember the story, uh, they do say at certain points that people said to, to Paro, let him go already. But Vayichazek Hashem is leif Paro, as we all know the famous story. Meaning it was counterproductive, but Pharaoh got obsessed on this. Uh, because had Paro been rational and very few political leaders are, he said, let's cut our losses. You understand? Let me put it this way. Slavery is an economic system at the end of the day. Slavery is an economic system. You're getting free labor or cheap labor. So, I mean, you got to feed them cheap labor. So, uh, okay, that makes sense. You know, you can talk about the morals of it, but it makes sense. The Torah, I remind you, has slavery. Uh, okay, shine. But that only works if you're making money at it. Let's say, for example, I'm just making this up. Let's say, for example, all the slaves come down with a disease and they can't work. At that point, get rid of the slaves. Emancipate them. In other words, it's, it's not going to die anymore. If all the Negro slaves in the South would have had some condition, I don't know, I'm off the top of my head, you know, would have come down with something where they can't work anymore or, or something like that, then the white owners would have released them because they said it's not going to die anymore. You understand? Um, there's no point. The whole purpose of slavery isn't simply to exercise sadism and racism and things like that. It's to get the uh, you know labor out of you so you make money. Uh, slavery can be very successful. I think I mentioned this. I saw once, what was the fourth largest economy in the world in 1860? The fourth largest economy in the world in 1860. The answer is Mississippi. I'm serious. They had it down to a science of slavery with the cotton plantation, which sold like a fortune. That they made a belt of money. Everybody became a millionaire, all these uh, slave owners. So it's an economic system. If you're getting the 10 plagues and the economic system breaks down, so it's not going to die anymore. Well, but it only lasted a week. So then the owners could say, well, you know, we had a tough time, but at the end, we're still here. See, each time it's a funny story. It's obviously not meant, as I said before, to break the system. But Rob, to force the Egyptians to let the Jews go as a particularistic measure. Notice what I just said, to let the Jews go. There were other slaves in Egypt. It doesn't say, the movie says it, but the Chumash doesn't say, that, you know, when, when, the, the, when, when Paro said, you can leave, he said, I'm, I'm emancipating all the serfs, I'm abolishing slavery in Egypt, like Abraham Lincoln, for now when we go on a different level on free labor. None of that. Slavery continued live and well in Egypt, as we all know. Only thing is, one particular group got out. That's the meaning 
Vesamti produced me an amila mecho, and shalaches ami ki abeni bechori Yisrael. All those terms and expressions you find over and over again in the narrative are highly particularistic ones. And frankly, they're pretty offensive if you're not Jewish, or they can be taken offensively. And many anti-Semites have done so down the ages, and I totally get it. I totally get it. What's interesting from a historical, cultural perspective, as many of us know, is that uh, in point of actual fact, the Christian religion and the Islamic religion ended up appropriating the Exodus story and applying it to themselves. So uh, in American culture, it's very well known that the Negro slaves, as they called them at that time, in the Old South, identify with the Hebrews and the many Negro spirituals, right? Uh, which they come on Moses and, you know, Pharaoh and the uh, promised land and all that, meaning they looked to the story of the Bible as inspiration, identifying themselves with the ancient slaves, and God would take them out of slavery as well. You know, there are like lots of those kinds of songs and, and, uh, and cultural traditions, and they're not the only ones. So in that context, if you're a Christian and you say the Hebrews are us, I get it. But if you're not... Then you say, how come, what's happens? How come there were a hundred different nationalities that were slaves in Egypt, in the ancient world, and only one was taken out? As I mentioned in my show the other day, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, when the Israelis took the Ethiopian Jews out of, uh, out of Ethiopia to Israel. At the very beginning, they just made a movie about this, I think, right? A movie. And, uh, you know, where they took the Ethiopian Jews out from Sudan, the Mossad. Uh, well... What does that mean? There were a million refugees running away from Ethiopia and these other places. And the Mossad came and they said, you and you and you and you come with us to Israel. The rest of you drop dead. You know, stay in Sudan. That's not fair. It's highly particularistic. Just because the guy's Jewish himself gets picked out Latov, that's the story of uh, Shmos. It's uh, very interesting. It's a particularistic one. And it says over and over again, you know, that Samti produced men Amina Mecho and, you know, Lamante Da, you know, whatever. That, that it's, it, it's, it's, it's one group. And the Jews themselves, the slaves, are slowly but surely being educated that there's something special. And the Danal went for a week bad for them. And the crocodiles and all the other things happened for them. And uh, that way they get a little bit of a chizuk so that they're able to leave. As we all know, the Jewish tradition, as I mentioned last week, as many did not leave. But the ones that left at least left. And that's because all of a sudden now I'm, I'm something special. If God shook up Egypt, he didn't destroy Egypt, right? He just shook them up. But he shook them up uh, pretty viciously uh, a week and then a week and then a week and then a week. So each time, then the Jew says, you know, uh, we're like a, a, a special family. So it's a certain racist, ethnic kind of business. But that is the story of the of the democracy uh, of of the yes Marcus, I think. By the way, you also have the pestilence. You know, with the, with the animals, right? With the animals that uh, were, dis- were, were uh, died, that hits the middle class. That's so interesting. The middle class. That's your local. Uh, uh, what shall I say? Uh, farmer with his own little plot of ground, because that farmer depends on uh, you know the, what shall I say? Your mule. You're one mule, you're one cow, you're one this, uh, you know, the animals to run a farm, and then they, they, all these animals die, and they get the, the, the terrible disease that wipes out the middle class. Now, again, it lasted for a week, so it was a terrible blow. When it was all over, they had to recover. Uh, but during that week, uh, all of a sudden, the landowning class is telling Pharaoh, let them go. The middle class, 
the small owners, I would say the 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 the, the, the middle class peasant is telling them, let them go. The priesthood is telling them, let them go. The people who believe in the Nile and the crocodiles are telling them, let them go. So he's getting from all sides. And if it wasn't for Vayachazek Hashem, the slave Paro, then uh, as we all know, the story would have cracked and let him go earlier. So uh, you see this ratcheting up all the time. I don't know ratcheting up, but uh, uh, applying it to different uh, sectors. Now, I don't have this all worked out like a science. I don't know exactly, like, Makas Choshech, Vesepis, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I could guess. Uh, a lot of these, uh, one of the things the Egyptian worship is the sun. S-U-N, the sun. And, uh, you know, I think that's Ra, isn't it? And Ra, the sun guy, I believe. And um, all of a sudden, you don't see the sun. <laughs> That's a Makas Choshech. So the sun died. Just It's the equivalent of the Nile bleeding. You understand? Again, you have to take yourself and put yourself, I think, in the shoes or sandals of an Egyptian from 3,000 years ago. Your whole world revolves around the idea every day you see the sun, that's a god. Oh, the sun is gone. <laughs> the, the sun is gone. And at the end of the story, you and I know it only lasted a week or whatever, three days, whatever. But they didn't know that. So imagine. <laughs> so, so each one of these is a profound... What's the right expression? A profound uh, disruption, shaking up, shattering of your deeply held religious uh, beliefs. Imagine a person believes in something or other and then becomes convinced the whole thing is just not true. It's it's hard to assimilate that. You understand? It's hard to figure that out. And uh, we've experienced it in the last 200 years with the rise of secularism where everybody, you know, loses faith in God. and But then they at least, uh, you know, have faith in secularism. Uh, seriously. But... You know, in reason and all that. But not 3,000 years ago. If your God has fallen apart, there's nothing there. And your mamas, you know, are, 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 are shattered. That's what I think I mean in a sophisticated way. That's what I think that means. You know, I'll, I'll really bust up your religious system. But I remind you, it only lasted a week. And after the year when the Jews leave, the Egyptians immediately, as people do, start rebuilding in their minds their religious notions and you know they they soldiered on uh, so it's very uh you know uh thought-provoking i would say the way this unfolds of course as you and i know paro doesn't crack until he himself is personally affected and that's the makas Baharus. that's the way it always goes the upper class doesn't give a darn for everybody else that's just the way the aristocracy is and uh you know they don't make any moves if the lower classes are affected only when they personally affect when Paro felt a personal threat. The Makas Bechor and Paro himself was a Bechor and all the rest of it. Then, of course, he cracked. So that means that by the time the Jews leave Egypt, they're feeling very different about themselves than they did 12 months ago. 12 months ago, they were down and working in the salt mines and, you know, Atal Shava, some Minho Avodo. You know, they, they, oh boy, they were really crushed and broken. And after 12 months, they say, you know, all these gods and things that are in Egypt... Seemed to have been shaken up, uh, you know, and, we, and we're something special. Now, that doesn't mean they understand it's a universal God, and that's why the rest of Shemos, you're going to see Moshe himself and Kalva Chum and the rest of the Israel saying, really, you can split the sea? I didn't know that. Really, you can come down to Harsinai? I didn't know that. Really, you can change the salty water into sweet water? I didn't know that. And so on and so forth. So uh, this is the process of, you know, traveling in the desert and all that and, and learning little by little. As far as I personally am concerned, I would say that the peak of Moshe's uh, knowledge of God comes with the Golden Calf episode. But that I'll save for another time. Anyway, I just want to give you a few ideas 
to think about in the context of the ten plagues. And with that, I bid you a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.